Hey, Malcolm. What's up, Darylise? What are you? Let's see. I'm a journalist, teacher, cat dad, boyfriend, Philadelphian. I could go on. No, I mean, what are you? Oh, that question. I hate that question. As Malcolm and I and so many of the people we spoke with this season can attest, the what are you question is one many of us multiracial people have been asked and will be asked quite a lot over the course of our lifetimes. Or there will be and have been times when others will guess what we are, misidentify us, and or tell us how we should identify on the basis of how they see us. In fact, I would argue that the what are you question can be one of the defining aspects of mixed identity. For so many of us, that question is integral to the experience of being multiracial. So having said that, I'm Malcolm Burnley, and I'm mixed. And I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm mixed too, although I generally say I'm biracial. Through the On Being Biracial podcast, Dara Lise and I are engaging in conversations about race with people of multiracial ancestry who identify in a variety of ways. And at least for me, having been asked that question over and over again during my life is proof that, in the eyes of society, I am neither Black nor white. If you're wondering, why does society matter? Well, race is a social construct, which isn't to say we have to allow society to determine our identities. We don't. But there's no denying that our experiences around race will have been shaped by how we're perceived by and treated by the people that make up society. That treatment then has an impact. For instance, the repeated exposure to the what are you question has shaped who I am in the world and how I show up and has led to what I describe as ambiguous experiences. In this episode, Malcolm and I will be exploring how external perceptions of identity impact us. Many of us biracial, multi-ethnic people have faced questions about our identities that our monoracial friends and family members will never have to. I've been asked, what are you, more times than I can count, and a few times I've even been told who I am and how I should identify. And Malcolm, you've been told different things by different people as they've tried to define you, right? Definitely, which is probably why I've done a lot of questioning about my identity and have felt awkward at times claiming my own sense of self, especially when how I see myself might not align with how others see me. Yeah, you're not alone in that. A quarter of multiracial Americans reported that people are confused about their racial background in a study from the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan think tank. And frankly, that number felt low compared to the stories we heard during our interviews. And in that study, of those people who said others were confused about their identities, 62% said that they found it annoying, which also felt like an underestimate given the stories we heard, and frankly, given my own experiences. Many multiracial people experience a particular kind of identity questioning and misidentification that has an impact on us, and that creates experiences that are far more rare among monoracial folks. Throughout this episode, Malcolm and I will talk with different people about their experiences of being asked to identify themselves and how they've perceived the what are you question. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the physiological impact of identity interrogation. Duke professor of psychology Sarah Gaither spoke about how research points to a measurable adverse response to identity questioning. So we were actually one of the, the first to measure cortisol responses. So cortisol is this biological hormone response in your body that when you experience something stressful, it spikes. And people yeah. who live their lives at higher cortisol tend to have early death, weight problems, sleep problems, et cetera. And that identity questioning of you're supposed to be white to be here, or you're not black enough spikes biracial people's cortisol, just like other groups. But that had never been shown before. But until we have data 
behind these real world experiences, it's almost like the biracial existence doesn't seem to matter. And I had so many biracial people cry at the end of that study. This was all ethics approved and everything, but they were crying, not because they were so sad, but they were crying because they were actually happy that there was a researcher somewhere that was trying to document this common questioning experience that they always have. Finding common ground is something I hope we're doing with this podcast and which author Lisa Funderberg shared about too in discussing the interviews she conducted for her incredible book, Black, White, Other. In the end, I think I interviewed 65 people and ended up with 46 or 47 in the book to bring these voices into one space and have this conversation, which just argues for both the ridiculousness of the concepts of race at its heart, but also the incredibly real repercussions of this false construct. I was really affirmed by and took away a powerful sense of the plasticity of identity, of how contextual our identities are and how normal that is where I think a lot of what is attached to mixed race experience and seen as pathological is that contextual identity, is our code switching and our fluidity and our shifts. I felt empowered by this kind of chorus of voices and chorus of experiences that feeling that way was not a sign of maladjustment, but in fact, adjustment and reality. Although the experience isn't exactly identical, trans individuals and non-binary gendered people often describe a similar feeling of being questioned, invalidated, and misidentified. And some also report being the objects of unwanted gazes, curiosity, and skepticism, which many multiracial people go through as well. Tyler Sloan, a Canadian actor and artist, shared about their experiences as a non-binary person who didn't recognize or embrace their own non-binary identity until participating in the Youth Elders Project, a theater-based program that began as a way to promote intergenerational conversations within the queer community. That experience began to give Tyler the language and the affirmation they needed to be more fully who they are and always had been. So I joined this program and my first day there, Lily was like, hey, what's your name? What's your pronouns to the whole circle? The Lili they're referring to is Lili Davis, the co-director of the Youth Elders Project. How do you identify? What is your sexuality? What's your gender? And I was very confused. I was like, huh? This is 2016, so I'm quite new. And they were like, I'm Lili Davis. I'm a, a non-binary gender fluid person. I'm also biracial. I use they, them pronouns. And it blew me away. I didn't think or know that you could use a different pronoun, let alone be a different gender. And so I asked the question, I was like, what is non-binary? Like, I don't understand. And Lily actually pitched it to the group and the group who a lot of my peers were like people who actually grew up in the city versus me who grew up in a small town. Like my town is like, when I first moved there, it was like 13,000 and like grew to like 25,000 by the time I left. Um, So it was still small, but there was like no sexual education, no queer history at all taught. So I, I spent probably the first six months flirting with it. And truth say, I, I, my roommate had come out as non-binary before we moved to Toronto, but I did not take non-binary identity seriously. And I think I also had worked with 
someone on a show who was also non-binary. So I vaguely knew the whole they, them uh, identity and the non-binary identity, but I was kind of like, I don't know if that's true because the marginalization was just so rapid and I, I wasn't wise or open enough to like clue in until I came to Toronto. And until I saw Lily and other racialized kids like me or youth like me, not kids, who were like, I'm non-binary or I'm gender fluid or I'm gender queer. And I was getting introduced to all of these things. <laughs> and because my facial expressions show up on my face, and I think other people had questions too, Lily was like, well, what does that mean? And so some of the folks who were genderqueer and non-binary and what have you were explaining gender and how they moved through it. And it was through their stories that I was like, in my brain, I was like, oh my God, that's that's me. I go through that. So I would say for probably officially, like since the beginning of 2017 to now, mm -hmm. I've been non-binary. People are naturally curious and they seek to make sense of the world through inquiry and categorization. However, when strangers make leaps and assumptions, especially in ways that override someone's identity, it can be isolating. Here's Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, a psychologist and children's book author. Going through my life, realizing that I'm being questioned or the way people are experiencing me might not be how I experience myself. The older I got, and even through like college and my graduate studies, starting to realize that my experience wasn't what everyone else's was. And I remember a very specific moment in a graduate program where I was kind of sitting in the middle. I had the white classmates and the black classmates around me, and even, you know, maybe an Asian class, you know, some different races and cultures. And I was talking about a story and asking how, you know, people always ask me what I am and going on and on. And everyone kind of looking at me and saying, nobody asks me that. And all of the other people kind of saying like, we don't really get that question. And I really thought that everybody was asked that all the time. It really did not occur to me until that moment where people were telling me like, no, that's a unique experience for you. We actually don't get that. People just assume or know or treat me in this way where I kind of went through my life having to define or be questioned often about what I was, right? That question, what are you? Where are you from? That comes up when you maybe look more racially ambiguous and people are wanting to place you, put you in the box. What happens when you're living an unboxed existence and being asked to contort yourself to fit into existing boxes? Or maybe you do feel you fit into an existing category, but then in constantly being asked to define yourself, it makes you question that. Being questioned about our identity, especially at a developmental age, when we're all still figuring out who we are, can feel delegitimizing and dehumanizing. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black Talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app, or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events. And become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Sienna McWhorter, an Australia-based high school student, 
with an interest in studying her own and others' multiracial experiences and how those compared to the experiences of monoracial people put it really well. I definitely think the the what's all the W's, like the what, the why, the who, all of them, they do tend to put you into a criteria and they tend to be categorising. Like you think of questions when you're like trying to sort stuff, they always start with the W. And sometimes, you know, it is people do like to be categorised. They do like to be, yeah, yes, that. But, you know, not everyone is like that. They need a system that works for everyone. And so people don't feel left out. Well, and you mentioned, because when I said I got in the what are you question a lot, you were like, yes, yes. And you were nodding. Like, so tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like a lot of people, because there's a lot of races, I guess, and ethnicities that have like tan, dark skin. And because I am mixed, I'm not distinctly one or the other. So I do get a lot of people trying to guess where I'm from or stuff like that. And they'd be like, I don't think any of them has ever guessed it right. A lot of them go, are you from Africa? That's the main one. Everyone thinks I'm from Africa. I'm like, no. Or they'll be like, are you from India and stuff like that? I'm like, no. They're just kind of listing like all the places they know where people who kind of look like me or have the same appearance as me are from. So they don't really know, but they kind of just go and they go, oh, what are you then? So it's just like they keep listing, trying to figure it out. And that's the what are you covers a lot. Then people see my mom and she's a lot darker and then they go, oh, what are you then? And then it's just a lot of confusion around it, I feel like. And I get asked a lot. And, you know, sometimes it's not in a negative, someone's not trying to do it for a negative reason or to try and put me down. But when they constantly get asked that, sometimes it's just like, oh gosh, do I just have to like write it on my forehead so everyone knows? It's sometimes annoying to repeat yourself constantly. It is annoying. It can also be invalidating. Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional who majored in African studies at Temple University, Pointed out, there's a powerful subtext contained within the asking. Question isn't just, you know, what I identify as, what does the world identify me as? Right. As so many of those we spoke with shared, people asking that question come to it with certain preconceptions. I've had people ask me the question more times than I can count. Which is how you began your TEDx talk, Black or White, Refusing to Choose and Embracing Biracial Identity. Over the course of my 38 years, I've been asked hundreds of times, what are you? My answer has always been the same. I'm biracial. I'm half black, half white. We'll put a link to the full talk in the show notes. But Darylise, I thought it was really powerful that you've been asked that same question hundreds of times and have always had the same answer, no matter what society says your answer should be. Maybe this is partially the journalist in me, but I'm always surprised when people ask when they don't really want my authentic answer or when they then go on to tell me what I am or how I should identify, which hasn't happened to me very often, but it has happened a handful of times. It's happened to me a lot. Here I am talking with my brother, Ian, who is a visual artist and filmmaker about our experiences of being questioned by and misperceived by others. And it's worth noting that our voices are very similar. And it's me speaking here first. I always knew I was mixed and always said so, but in terms of getting either questioned or I also got similar experiences of people either innocently or less innocently insinuating or suggesting that I was a different race, whether it was Middle Eastern or ethnicity, Mexican or whatever. 
So people read you that way? People would read me that way. And the point I'm getting to is that when I would push back, I would, I think, almost always say I was Black. Of course, if anyone who is either asking more generally, it would be mixed. But I feel like at that age to push back, I guess, or to self-identify as an other, I often did as Black. And then as I got older, much more have told people first and foremost that I'm biracial and mixed. The questions don't have to be malicious in order to have a negative impact. And in fairness to other people, one of the things we can acknowledge is that the human brain wants to have categories for things. And when there are people who appear not to fit into an easily definable pre-existing category, it can be confusing. That's not to say that multiracial or biracial people should bear the burden of clearing up other people's confusion. Here's Charlotte Gill, a professor at King's College and author of the book, Almost Brown, a mixed race family memoir. Yeah, well, what are you is I'm smiling right now because this is one of the I think this is a very common joke among people who are mixed race is that you have this ethnic ambiguity about you. I mean, I look like a brown person, but I also look white and it's very flexible. It depends on perception and who's in the room and who's looking at me. But the what are you question is something I have received, and I'm sure there are thousands of people in mixed race communities, millions who've received this question. In her book, Charlotte captures how what are you can often feel like a twisted joke. Yeah, I mean, I found it painful as well as funny. And maybe the humor was an attempt to cope with how painful it was at times. And I certainly don't want to speak for everybody's who's mixed race, because oftentimes these situations befall people who have a white mix and people who are of mixes that aren't white will often face completely different scenarios. I completely understand that. But the what are you question, it makes me realize how plastic identity can be. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what are you? And I will tell them and they'll say, but not really though. Right. And then I say, okay, well, I guess if you don't think I am, then where can this conversation go? As Charlotte said, there can be something funny in the experience of getting misidentified, even when there's pain that comes with it. When I wrote an essay for Philadelphia Magazine in 2014 about my own experience, I also found humor in the heartache. I started my story like this. It's 1.30 a.m. on a Saturday at the barren 24-hour Melrose Diner in South Philly. I'm there alone. The hostess is hawk-eyed at the cash register, as if I'm going to steal her silverware. She eventually moseys up to my booth. Do you have a tan, or is that your natural skin color? She asks. Natural, I tell her. What are you? I give her three guesses. Hawaiian? Nope. Samoan? Mm, Getting colder. At this point, a nearby server who's been eavesdropping on the conversation decides to join in. Puerto Rican, he says. Wrong. Dominican? Wrong again. Then, five minutes after I've told him my ethnicity, a third member of the waitstaff comes up to me. Hey, I like your skin color. What are you? Welcome to my world. 
what a strange and unsettling way to approach someone. And I'm not so sure it's always meant to lead to a conversation. I think there are many instances where people asking, what are you, may be meant to open a door or to be curious. But there are other times when it seems like it's meant to be a proclamation. That's how visual merchandiser and planner Kat Dyson has often filtered and received the question, a question she's been asked a lot throughout her life. How did you perceive that what are you question? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I hated it. I, I still hate it. You still get it. It seems that most of my life I've been battling with people asking if I'm Hispanic and having to give that disappointing answer of like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. But then having to go through and explain like there's another set of people in this world that have multiple races. If you don't know, I'm like I am, I am black and I am white. What are you is just, it's terrible. It makes you just want to go like, I'm human and just move on. Kat shared with me that at times she's felt like she disappointed people when she was the one being misraced. And she's had to explain that she's not Hispanic or Latina and how those experiences made her feel othered and inadequate or like an outsider. That can happen even with family, like Kimberly described. I've had this a month ago with family members being like, oh, what are you or where are you from? And my reaction being like, oh, I'm from down the street. I grew up near here. And then being like, no, but like, where are you from? Right? Like they kind of double down on it. And I'm like, no, I'm really from here. I was born in New York. But they're obviously, you know, and, and sometimes it's hard even, you know, even as an adult, not to have a reaction to that question of, I know what they're looking for. <laughs> I know what they're trying to ask me, but they're asking it away. And I, you know, at this point I get to choose how I want to answer it. I get to choose if I want to say, oh, you know, my dad's Puerto Rican, my mom's Hungarian Jewish. Or if I want to say, hey, I'm, I'm from New York. It does switch form throughout your life based on where you are, who's asking, on what you, what you want to share. Kimberly told me there have been times and situations where she's felt like the question has come from an open and inviting place, and other times when it's clearly not been that. And she said that as a therapist, she tries to assess what emotional impact it will have on her to engage with the questioner. But regardless, the questioning can hurt. It's still hurtful when those things happen and they happen recently. It's, this isn't something that like necessarily is just, oh, I grew up and then this ended in my life. Racial identity is something that continues throughout our whole lives. It's not something that we're like, okay, figured it out. It's done. Healing from it is like, you know, I have to go into those situations. Like I know who I am. I know, you know, these different pieces of me and I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not, or I'm not going to like necessarily try super hard to act a certain way. So I feel like I can fit in and I have to just be genuine and true to myself. There are groups of people that it is hard for them to accept me as a multicultural person into their idea of what they'd like me to be. And I think I just have to come to some acceptance that this is an experience that I'm going to have throughout my life and I have to feel grounded in who I am so it doesn't have an emotional impact on me. Part of her ability to create some emotional distance has come from the creation of boundaries in terms of self-disclosure and entering into conversations with people who might not deserve her time and energy. When I was younger, I think I would give information more. You know, I think it, it has changed where I think it was much more I used to be like, I'm Puerto Rican and Jewish. I would just define myself just to kind of move on from the conversation. It's not always a conversation either. Sometimes it's a comment that people make that in an instant overrides a person's experience of themselves. I remember a time a few years ago after telling a white person that I'm black and mixed, they didn't buy it. They said, 
are you sure you're black? That has to have been hard. And it also speaks to societal ignorance regarding race and identity. W. Kamau Bell, a television show host, stand-up comedian, filmmaker, and the father of three multiracial daughters, related a story that his middle daughter Juno shared in the 1000% Me documentary. And the story that Juno tells that I knew about, because we remember when it happened, about being told by a kid that she was white and how she responded to it, and the look on her face of sort of like just sadness and a little bit of disgust about like, how dare you call me white? And just the feeling of like there, and you know, there's through the history of this country, there has been a privilege to passing for some black folks. And it's a thing that they have chosen, maybe painfully, but just to know that Juno had grown up in a house where it was like, that wasn't even in her radar. And not to say that she may not make a decision or blah, 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 da, da, da. But in that moment, she was like fighting for her black identity. So that was something that I was really happy to see her. I knew the story, but to hear her even tell it again, it really meant a lot to me. None of those we interviewed this season, even those who spent a portion of their lives identifying as white, felt like passing or presenting as white left them unburdened in terms of questioning themselves and or being questioned by others. Those we spoke with shared about the particular pain of assumed whiteness, and while they acknowledged their privilege, it didn't prevent a deeper interrogation of themselves. Here's a portion of my conversation with Drew Almond, who is indigenous and white. When you think about belonging, is it something that is generated from within, like your sense of your own belonging, or is it something that's more determined by the communities that you're engaging with? I think that it can be both. I think that those two things are interrelated a lot of the time. I'm not sure. I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that way. I guess a lot of it, if it's a feeling of belonging, it comes from within and then you act a certain way that you're you're representing or you're declaring yourself a certain way outwardly. And then that's going to affect how people do or don't accept you. But then there's that feedback loop of once you declare yourself something and people either resist or question that, and then you're questioning yourself. Drew is the project director of VTEC, the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, and a citizen of the Upper Mattapanai Indian Tribe in King William, Virginia. He's made the decision to be assertive about his identity because it's important to him, but also because he's aware that so many non-Native people hold innumerable misconceptions about Indigenous people, and he wants them to question their beliefs and biases. One of my favorite things to do in the past few years is now that I have a tribal citizen ID, I use that whenever I'm carded places. And sometimes if I'm at a bar or something and and a bartender will take it and look at it and then look at it for a really long time. And I just wonder, are they're thinking like, is this real? If I ask if it's real, is that going to be problematic? If it is real, what is this guy doing here. I can't tell if this is, but I can't look up, but now I've been looking at it for too long. And then they'll just look up and say, welcome. Why is that one of your favorite things to do? Favorites, maybe not the right word. On the one hand, I do think it's important to represent indigenous people as people who are going about their everyday lives, going shopping and going to restaurants and things like that, living in cities. They're not all living in a teepee with a headdress and beads everywhere. I think that's partly important to me. And it's 
also just I have an idea. I'm a member of this federally recognized tribe. I don't need to convince you because I have the government issued ID that says so, or at least in this case, it's tribal government issued, but it's in conjunction with Homeland Security. This idea of convincing is one that comes up for many multiracial, multicultural people in different ways, but it particularly came up as something indigenous folks deal with. In fact, according to Pew, indigenous and white is the most common mixture among all biracial adults in the U.S. Here's Tyler again. Indigenous cultures in North America, I think, are the only culture where you have to prove that you are. And after everything that, I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious, obviously, but it's like after, right, like the history, the remnants, all these things have been stripped away. Then to be asked that you have to <laughs> prove it is just this other level of just pain. Yeah, it is. And because I believe it's Dene and Cree folks who are predominantly in Alberta, a lot of those people are tall, tall and skinny. And long hair, because they're the, the huge teaching in indigenous cultures that your hair is is medicine and there's a story to it and it's a whole significance to it. I had short, spiky hair and I was a chubby, stocky kid who's 5'7". So I'd be like, I'm indigenous. And they're like, no, you're not because you don't fit the stereotype. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To learn more, visit resolvephilly.org PJC. Because other people think they know how a person is supposed to show up on the basis of the identities they hold, there can be a disconnect between who we know ourselves to be and the identity that others superimpose onto us, or the answer they'll accept after having asked the question, what are you? Definitely agree that identity and like perception aren't necessarily the same thing. That was David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, a restorative justice practitioner and trainer. That what are you question? Is that one that you've encountered a lot in your lifetime? And how do you respond to that? Depends on the context and how abrasive I want to be or how quickly I'm just trying to get out of a conversation. It might just look like walking away and ignoring the person. It might look like saying, oh, I'm human. I'm a basketball fan. I am, you know, like all kinds of things to get out of just giving the straight answer, which I know that they want. And it also depends on like if the person's white or not, <laughs> presenting or not, because I know almost always it's met with curiosity. i sorry, it comes from a place of curiosity, but it feels like a question. What it often feels like under the surface is you don't belong here. Why don't you belong here? You're strange and let me find out why. I appreciated David bringing the conversation back to the fact that people might be curious and at the same time they're asking the question might have an impact of othering. That's something Ian shared about too. I remember just getting questions that weren't, there wasn't like a bad intention necessarily behind them, but it was like a kid in the hall, some other student would come up to me and ask, are you Mexican? Because he saw my skin being brown and my response, because my skin is brown, 
my response was no. And this other kid, I have a memory of this, this other kid saying, oh, okay. And then he just walked away. People are curious about other people. And I think that there were uncomfortable interactions, but I think for the most part, it it came from a place of people being curious, not so much trying to be mean, at least at that point. Evan Fong Jaroff, who is of Cuban, Russian, Jewish, and Chinese descent, also spoke about engaging with the what are you question and how he feels about entering into conversations about identity and culture. Maybe a little hesitant at first, but I feel like most of the time it's it's from coming from a good place or someone wants to understand or they have something deeper that they want to ask about or there's a something that you can build a connection through or you can learn from, then I think that's that's great. I think that's that's the point of it. And I think I've gotten accustomed to being in uncomfortable situations and I might be uncomfortable for a couple of minutes and then say, okay, but uncomfortableness is also growth either for me or for someone else. So I think, yeah, I, I want to welcome more of those, those conversations. Evan is open to people asking him about his identity or his hair or his multicultural background. I am too. Some people aren't. It's really dependent on the person. Which is why I loved when Sienna urged others to know people as people, not by their appearance or their ambiguity. To me, the what are you question doesn't feel curious. It makes me feel like the person asking is implying that I don't belong, which then triggers that negative cortisol impact that Sarah Gaither spoke about. Simply put, it can be damaging. Here's Kat again. I think it's a very rude question. <laughs> and if anyone is going to do any reflecting on that, it should be personal. It should be internal. You don't have to do it with a random person that asks you. What kinds of responses do you have to that question or have you had over the course of your life? Oh, goodness. Depends on how I'm feeling that day. Sometimes it's humans. Sometimes it's all of the races. Sometimes it's leave me alone. I'm busy. Some people come to that question with decent intentions. They just want to tell you that they're part Italian or Irish or whatnot. And they just want to start a conversation, which is which is fine. And you, you read the room. But sometimes it can be people that just want to hit on you. Some people that just want to know what they can say in front of you. So asking that is just inappropriate. I'd rather you get to know who I am first and then you can meet my parents. Like, there you go. <laughs> it's not just people asking directly that can bring up confusion, questioning, and even confrontation. It's also being asked in other ways. Like on the U.S. Census or in school questionnaires or in those forms that we fill out at doctor's offices. Sarah shared about filling out a form and having a doctor not know how to react to her because she didn't pick a side. I did an osteoporosis study one time for bone density for women, and I checked my races, and the doctor came back and said, oh, you filled out your form wrong. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, what did I miss? And like, oh, no, you marked two races. I don't know what to do with your bones. And I, I stood there, and I said, well, and I held my arm, but I was like, I realize what color my skin is, but do black and white people have different bones? Can you, like, tell me that I've never read that before? Like, that would be very interesting. And he was like, I don't know if we should be talking about this. I'm like, so are my bones in trouble? Or what? I thought this was a study for women. Like, why does it even matter? And so it's those types of discussions, I think, across my life. And as I've aged and gotten more into research, that I realize, although I'm doing this within the psychology realm, there's a lot of other disciplines, right, that have yet to really grapple with how we accurately categorize a multiracial person in our databases, right, to know what our education rates are, 
our health outcomes. So those are other conversations that I try to have with parents and families and other multiracial adults is to just make them aware to be advocates for themselves, because I don't think we always know what's going to happen to us because we've been wrongly categorized or just excluded from research across all research domains. On that point, there were so many pieces of data that we wanted to include in this episode. Things like how many times a biracial person gets asked, what are you in their day-to-day lives? Or to quantify how many people perceive that question negatively versus positively. But we couldn't find those stats. There's a deep void of research around multiracial experiences. From the perspective of tracking outcomes, measuring health, and various research metrics, there's so much that it would be helpful to learn about multiracial people and our risks for developing certain diseases, our life expectancies, the barriers we face, the privileges we have access to, etc., all of which have a lot to do with various factors such as racial mixtures, colorism, external appearance, the communities to which we have access, how much identity mirroring we receive, and so much more. Speaking of the data void, questionnaires and other attempts to gather information can bring up a lot for those who don't check a single box. Azaria Keys is Assistant Director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox School of Business at Temple University. And she's one of Darylise's co-hosts for Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. She shared about her experiences with identity questioning. I remember like checking the box as a kid. Now they have the option where it's like multiple races. And you used to have, I don't know why they give kids so many questionnaires in school, but I remember so many times like having a questionnaire and it was like the few options. And at the time you couldn't choose more than one or else it disqualified your answer. And I didn't care. I was checking both every single time or if like it was a really important Form, I would just check black. So starting around there, I started to realize I needed language to identify myself. There was a time where I let people define me. And like, if someone wanted to say that I was mixed, if someone wanted to say I was biracial, fine, whatever. But now even, and this gets back to the not wanting, like owning my blackness and being so proud of it, but not wanting to own it in a way that offends people who have had different experiences than me. I almost always say I'm a biracial black woman. And then in other rooms, I'm just black. And I want to own, I want to add that I've had conversations with people who I look up to who have pointed out that that in itself is a privilege. That is a privilege that I have to own because of the light complexion of my skin. So being able to go through phases of my life where I can either say I'm black or I'm biracial or I'm mixed, those are all privileges. I'm aware of the privilege and there is no language that really encapsulates what it is to be a person who's biracial, who might choose to identify with one or both sides. It's hard. It can be hard in a variety of ways. It can also be confusing. I spoke with Sarah Bella Rocha, who is a tailor and artist of Colombian and British descent living in Philadelphia. She shared her experiences filling in her racial identity on a forum for school. It definitely had changed through a lot of those experiences of like here in the Northeast for high school. I remember when signing a form when I was transferring from the night school there, I had asked just out of confusion of uh, they say white Caucasian or they will say Latino, but then they'll put in parentheses, not white or on the white, not Latino. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because I am in that. So then the only option is I don't recall if you even have biracial in there. I feel like it's two or more races. 
that and it would always be other and at that point other was the only option it seemed to me that made sense is there anything more othering than being forced to check the other box not really at least not for many of us and generally speaking the experiences of being othered has a psychological impact although we don't have a lot of good research on the multiracial experience a few studies have sought to measure mental health outcomes for multiracial youth who are significantly more likely to experience sadness, suicidal ideation, and self-harm than their monoracial peers. Identity questioning impacts everyone differently, but for a lot of biracial, multiracial people, it can be destabilizing. Here's Sienna again. I've had experience where I had to fill out a form or something. It talks about my racial background for some reason, which I didn't know why I needed it. And I, there was only one box I had to tick, but I didn't fit into either box. Whereas my mom, she fit into one of us, so she could just tick it, and my dad could just tick it. But like me and my sisters are just here, like, what are we supposed to tick? Because we'd be lying if we say we're one and we're not another. What did you do with the form? Well, I just like handed it back and I was just like, sorry, I can't, I can't tick it. There's no box for me. And there was no other option either. Sienna's telling of this experience reminded me of an essay written by the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle at the time, for Elle magazine back in 2015. In her first-person article, Markle wrote, There I was, my curly hair, my freckled face, my pale skin, my mixed race, looking down at these boxes, not wanting to mess up, but not knowing what to do. You could only choose one, but that would be to choose one parent over the other and one half of myself over the other. My teacher told me to check the box for Caucasian. Because that's how you look, Megan, she said. I put down my pen not as an act of defiance, but rather a symptom of my confusion. I couldn't bring myself to do that, to picture the pit in her belly sadness my mother would feel if she were to find out. So I didn't tick a box. I left my identity blank, a question mark, an absolute incomplete, much like how I felt. When I went home that night, I told my dad what had happened. He said the words that have always stayed with me. If that happens again, you draw your own box. I will say that I find it somewhat uplifting that many forms now, including the most recent U.S. Census, do allow the option for selecting multiple races, although the system remains imperfect. Let's return to Sarah Bella speaking about the placement of the multiracial category even on forms that have that option. I can't imagine that would be so low on the like categorization either. You know, it's always on the bottom part too as an option. And I'm like, wouldn't majority of people be other too, really, at this point in time? I don't know. <laughs> I always felt that way too. It was such an afterthought. And it felt like by checking that, you know, almost like they were casting you aside or something because it was always last. There is something symbolically significant about being last on a list and perhaps psychologically significant too. But also, Darylise, to your point, I do think it's important to acknowledge the shift in opening up the options so people don't have to choose just one thing or another, but also not only that, allowing people to choose for themselves. Yeah, I didn't realize it until I started researching and reporting on the topic of race, but the U.S. Census didn't always go by self-identification. Here's Drew again. It seems, or at least I think it seems antiquated to have people choose between a binary choice of being one race or the other race in such a globalized and diverse society, especially in the United States. It's a country, you know, quote unquote, founded by, by immigrants from other places for the most part. 
And yet it wasn't until fairly recently, I think I'm looking at my notes here because I, I just pulled them up. In 1970, this is the U.S. Census, you were offered a choice of your race to declare your own race, but there were only single race categories offered beginning in 2000. Single race categories were offered, but respondents were told they could mark more than one to identify themselves. So I had notes on this basically around, because I got curious and I, I thought about, I kind of run into this a lot and it's still something that official records and institutional records still put people into people who declare as single races and they are represented as their races and people who declare as multiple individual races are clumped together in a multiracial category or mixed race. And I don't know who that's supposed to serve, but it's an interesting statistic, I guess, anecdotally to know how many people are mixed race. But if you're trying to tease out where different populations are and what their needs might be and what societal trends surround those populations, you're really, um, I think, undercutting those, those efforts by doing that. A little more about that history Drew is referring to. The U.S. Census began in 1790. And for the majority of its existence, census takers were the ones making the determination of race based on their own observations. There was no room for self-identification, and there was no room for checking more than one box. For example, here's one of the instructions given to census takers in 1930. Quote, a person of mixed white and Negro blood was to be returned as Negro, no matter how small the percentage of Negro blood. Someone part Indian and part Negro also was to be listed as Negro, unless the Indian blood predominated and the person was generally accepted as an Indian in the community, end quote. It wasn't until 1960 that the census allowed people to fill out racial categories themselves. In 2000, people were finally allowed to check more than one box. It's also important to acknowledge that race only tells us so much and that there is incredible ethnic and cultural diversity within and among races. Let's return to your conversation with Drew. Your organization interfaces with a number of different tribes, correct? Correct, yeah. How do you support people in connecting with their own unique heritage, roots, culture, their own tribal sovereignty as part of a larger indigenous collective organization where they're working together? But as you say, that identity is so important and not wanting to erase that. So I guess yeah. it seems like there's a lot of, yeah, like I, I know I packed a lot into that question, but it's just seems like a, it'd be something that you'd be conscious of on yeah. an ongoing basis. No, it's, it's a great question. The same conversation about maybe not being a great idea all the time to lump in all non-white people as just like one big non-white blob. People tend to lump together all indigenous communities and think that they're all the same. When you think about the size of North America in comparison to like Europe and how different we see all the different countries and nations of Europe, it was diverse as hell here too. Those people didn't all know each other. They weren't dressing the same. They weren't acting the same. They didn't believe all the same things. When we want to know who other people truly are, what they believe, what they do, the experiences they've had, the areas of overlap and difference, it's important to be open to learning, which means moving away from superimposing our own preconceptions onto others, past, present, or future. 
I love how Drew spoke about being diverse as hell, because yes, people even within the same identity categories are diverse as hell. And also, I just keep coming back to the fact that race is a construct. To that point, the earlier discussion about how the census has changed over time really goes to show just how fabricated these categories are, even though at the same time, they also tell us something real about the nature of our current society. Here's Lisa Funderburg again. I think the first time the census actually counted mixed race identity was in 2000. And they used to just use the eyeball test. The census takers would make a determination based on what they saw, and that would be what counted. Or if someone wasn't home, they'd look at who the neighbors were and decide, because racial segregation was so strong and still is, they would decide who the inhabitant of the house was if they couldn't reach them, who they were racially. But Finally, census categories have changed always. In a way, the Census Bureau is the first group to understand that it's a social construct. Who was white, who shifted from one category to another has changed over time. And check all that apply, C-A-T-A, is a real advancement in understanding how we identify the forms are sort of following, maybe dragging their feet a little behind the reality of lived experience. But the last time I checked, and it may be different now, 2000 was the first year that they actually recorded when people would check more than one race. They actually kept that information. But for the purposes of affirmative action or civil rights legislation, if you checked more than one box, and that information was needed in order to enforce a law, they would re-aggregate you into the minority category, which is an imperfect, to say the least, way of doing things. But how do you come up with a perfect system to handle something that is, by its very nature, logic-defying? There's no perfect system, but in looking at the systems that do exist, it's important to understand the ramifications of navigating them in different ways and what that means in the lives of everyday people. Professor Barbara Idelis Abadia Rexash, whose research focuses on representations of Blackness in Puerto Rican media, spoke about how filling out the census in 2000 versus 2020 not only paints a different picture of race in Puerto Rico, but makes sense of cultural phenomenon that can't be understood if we leave race out of the equation. In the census 2000, the population of Puerto Rico was 80% white, and 8% Black. And we use the same form at the U.S. because we are a U.S. colony. So they only translate it to Spanish, but they have the same categories and the same questions than in English, which is so problematic because we don't have the same categories in Puerto Rico that we have here in the U.S. So say white Caucasian people says, I'm not white, but I don't know what happened in their mind that they choose white. Barbara knew that much more than 8% of Puerto Ricans had dark skin and African heritage, which suggested that the figure had less to do with white skin color and more to do with self-perception on the island. In 10 years later, in the census 2010, the percentage of only white were 76% and 12 black. So there's a raised the, the Blacks and hubo un decrecimiento de la población only white. Then, 
Uh, during the 2010 census, we had uh, Barack Obama as president. Mm -hmm. The movement of Puerto Ricans back and forth to the U.S., because we have the U.S. passport since 1917, is constant. But I think that more non-white Puerto Rican has been moving to the U.S. back and forth, and they confront the question, where are you from? and other things that we experience here in the U.S. because we are racialized as non-white people, because of our accent, because the language, because of the culture, et cetera. That I think that, this is my hypothesis, that has something to do with that idea of becoming more Black in Puerto Rico. The census 2020 was a surprise for us as, as part of the anti-racist movement in Puerto Rico because Colectivo in there, we developed a media campaign in which we were asking people to choose more than one. If you see yourself in the mirror and you see non-white person, don't pick white or Caucasian as your race category. We also were asking uh, people to, to write Afro-descendant below the category that they pick. There's 15 categories. You can put all 15 and you can play with them with that because the message that we want people to, to send to the Congress, to the U.S. Congress, is that we are a colony of the, a non-white colony of, of the U.S. and we don't have the same privileges and we don't have the same services. We don't have the same resources than other U.S. citizens in the U.S., and also, uh, we were trying to, to teach people in Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans in the diaspora that this is imposed instruments from the imperio. It's an imperial uh, imposition, the census with these categories, etc. And it's not fair for Black communities in Puerto Rico, for impoverished people in Puerto Rico, to not receive funds and, and help or what they need is not help, it's what they, the human rights they deserve is if we continue saying that Puerto Rico is a white archipelago. In 2000, about four-fifths of the population identified as white. In 2020, only about one-fifth did. And the result that we get, I remember that I, I was seeing the um, La Conferencia de Prensa, the, pre the press conference from the census, and I was waiting for the results. And a journalist called me to react. And I was say, David, uh, hold on. I, I don't have the results <laughs> yet. And he said, but I have it. And when he told me 17% white, I was like, no, you're wrong. It should be 71, but not 17. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's right. <laughs> And he sent me a, a captura de pantalla and a screenshot of the results. <laughs> and I was like, I can't say nothing. I'm just so happy. I was like so surprised. And I know that with those results doesn't mean that, that there's no more anti-Black racism in Puerto Rico. And we have a lot to do. But those results was important for our struggle yeah. against anti-Black racism in Puerto Rico. As Barbara points out, if we're going to work against racism, we have to take identity categories and experiences seriously and to validate people's conceptions of themselves. Absolutely. 
At the same time, there's a tremendous difference between a stranger on the street walking up to you and saying, what are you, and filling out a set of forms geared at examining health risks, demographic data, income considerations, etc., that can lead to actions being taken to support and uplift those who may be marginalized or overlooked. Exactly. As long as those forms don't further perpetuate racist and or binary thinking that inflict harm on those they ought to be helping. Here's Kimberly again. A lot of what I've even researched is about, you know, that kind of stuff that those categorizing yourselves and, and how complicated that is. And I think a lot of people know at this point how for years and years and not until very recently were people even allowed to check multiple boxes in the U.S. Census. And it's not just the U.S. Census, it's every form we ever fill out in our lives, right? And so... Yeah. It is complicated because you want to include all the parts of yourself, but a lot of times we're forced to pick and that's, that can be hard. Right. And it's not just the forms. It's what those forms reflect about the paradigms that govern our society. Mm -hmm. Malcolm, during your conversation with Ashanti Martin, who is the general manager of Word, the Black Talk radio station in Philadelphia, which is one of our partners and sponsors on this podcast, I found it really interesting how both you and Ashanti had anecdotally observed that you're getting the what are you question less over time. So someone will ask, oh, what's your background or what are you? Which I I mean, no, I'm not going to say I don't get offended at that question. I get offended less at that question of what are you now, but it could also be because fewer people ask it. But that's usually when I bring it up is when I'm asked. I feel like I do get asked that question less now. Yeah, it's interesting. It's nice. You know, it it's is good. nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a such a normal occurrence, and I feel like, yeah, it's not... not yeah, not very. It was, it was very, very common, and... It is less so now. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, I guess there is some of the optimist in me that thinks people are slowly getting more aware and and cultured just at why that could be offensive. The pessimist in me is just like, I've, especially with the pandemic, I just don't see people as much. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, you're right. I do think it's more than that. I do think it's Mm -hmm. more than that. Because I'm just thinking back even to, I teach a class as an adjunct at Temple, and I've only been doing it for three years, but I've essentially gotten a version of that question from some students, but never that question. They've always asked it in a very polite and just, I don't know, less accusatory way in terms of even if they tiptoe kind of sheepishly around it, just asking what my background is, right? As opposed to like, what are you? You know, that's a small sample, but I'm just thinking in terms of younger people and my hope would be that's reflective of them understanding things a little bit more. I don't know. I would say so. I mean, (laughs) those things, I think there's been a lot of social media education over the last several years about like what not to do. And I think that has sunk in. And I think that, you know, there's also more mixed race people. So people are just kind of a little more used to it. And then it doesn't feel like this strange curiosity anymore, or at least not as much. I feel like there was, if I could see like a graph of, in my own life, getting asked that question, I feel like it went along at a certain pace, you know, then Obama got elected. And I feel like it actually spiked for a little bit afterwards where people were more conscious of people being mixed and that experience, but at the same time, didn't quite know. And there was like a exoticism around it. Interesting. I feel like there's been maybe a little bit more like kind of awareness as you were getting at. Right. The increase in awareness cuts both ways though, doesn't it? What do you mean? 
I guess I mean that for people who are not themselves biracial, it's great that they're becoming more sensitized to the impact of othering and not asking those invasive questions. But on the other hand, not asking runs a risk too. People might make assumptions about mixed people's identities. I'm not saying that's bad, but it can be invalidating. Based on my own experience, I think that fewer questions will lead to less negative identity questioning, particularly for youth. That's something Charlotte spoke about. I feel as if we, at least this happened to me when I was a child. I don't know if it's an experience that you had as well. The idea was introduced to me at some point in my childhood that I should be confused about who I am, or I didn't somehow, it was a mystery to me who I was. And I think the young people don't have that confusion at all. But I, I don't feel like we should be confused even for one second about who we are. It's not our confusion in many cases. Sometimes I feel that it's the discomfort of the world having to rearrange ever so slightly its thinking around what race is when there's an overlap between two or more. The confusion and questioning can be hard. And yet, overwhelmingly, the people we spoke with shared about grappling with that, while at the same time being really grateful for and proud of their cultures and backgrounds. Here's Chantel Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Mindset Strategies, a leadership development firm that focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, speaking about people asking her about her race and perceiving her in different ways, and also speaking about how she embraces her own identity in the midst of that external confusion. It happens daily, or it's ongoing, I should say. And so, yeah, definitely not linear, and just how you present to the world, but also being proud of the fact that I love who I am and I'm grateful that I am a mixed race because I feel like I have so much more diversity in, in me and I feel like my whole life is diverse. This idea of containing multitudes seems to me to be part of many people's experiences of being multiracial, as does the experience of other people being curious about us and questioning who we are or where we come from. Or even where we fit. Exactly. The topic of belonging came up so often throughout our interviews that we dedicated an entire episode to exploring it. Be sure to check out episode five when it comes out. You know, Darylees, some of the most important takeaways I hope listeners get from this episode, and maybe even from this entire season, are to please stop asking people they barely know what they are and how they identify. And certainly stop telling people Right. Because it's not just rude or invalidating, but it can also contribute to psychological distress, such as imposter syndrome and dissociation, which can be really damaging. Earlier, we spoke about Sarah Gaither's research. Along with two research professors at Rutgers University, Sarah conducted and authored a research paper entitled Identity Denied, Comparing American or White Identity Denial and Psychological Health Outcomes Among Bicultural and Biracial People. I'd like to read a short excerpt from that paper. Given that belonging to multiple groups is a key component of their dual identity, a sense of belonging appears to be especially important in predicting bicultural and biracial people's mental health outcomes. Both bicultural and biracial identity development models highlight the need to belong and the threat of cultural homelessness when these populations are marginalized. I'm glad we were able to point out those research findings. Even though on a personal level, stories have always been what most impact me, there's no denying statistics. 
And knowing that researchers found these common themes is validating the people's experiences and perhaps helpful to those who might not themselves be biracial or multiracial in getting a better understanding of what the experience might be like for their friend or loved one or even a stranger for that matter. I think to your point, Malcolm, stories and statistics are both important and reinforce each other. It's helpful to have data that substantiates what we and so many others have experienced. But also that's not to say that there's any one multiracial experience or that every person with a biracial background will face identity questioning. The more I delve into the subject, the more I realize that we can't tell who someone is or what someone is just by looking at them. But also having said that, that doesn't mean we should take it upon ourselves to ask people either. Here's Sarah again. Obviously, depending on what racial mixture you are, you have different phenotypicality or physical appearance options that you may have. A lot of our work doesn't find that phenotypicality matters for how a biracial person necessarily identifies internally. Someone like myself, right, is a good example where I very much identify with the Black community, but you would never know that I'm Black by looking at me. Where it does tend to matter more so, right, is if you care more about how society is treating you or if you used experiences of discrimination or prejudice as a pathway to racial or ethnic identification, your physical appearance is going to play a much larger role in that identity development in those cases. But there's not, again, a ton of work looking at the role that phenotypicality plays, at least for multiracial identification. We've done a lot of work with what we call priming in psychology. So we'll get a biracial person to think of one of their racial identities over the other. We find it does shift temporarily how much you claim that one part of yourself, but it doesn't move how much you identify as being biracial. So that level of identification doesn't move at all, which suggests that it really is this kind of internal level of identification that you're choosing for you, regardless of what a person may look like. It does matter a lot more when you come into interracial interactions of someone perceives you as only being white or only being black that outward perceiver, right, is going to treat you very differently depending on how you look. So again, it's kind of this interaction between your internal identification and how these perceivers might be treating you on a daily basis. The cumulative impact of racialized experiences adds up. And while these externals may not shape how we view ourselves, in terms of how we view our identities, they may shape feelings of legitimacy and belonging. And they carry a certain pressure and a considerable amount of pain that, if unchecked, can leave lasting psychological scars. Kamau Bell offered an important, if sad, insight about the impact of identity pressures from the outside world on the psyches of multiracial people over time. The thing that I noticed was that the older kids get, the more the outside world pushes in and says, pick a side. So when you go from Juno, who's seven, Sammy, who was 10, her friends are like 10 and 11. They are very open to, I can claim both. I am all these things. Then you get to my goddaughter, Carter, who's a preteen, and you can feel the weight of the world in her voice. And you get to Kaylin, who's in high school, and you can feel the weight of the world and the weight of hormones and peer pressure. And so for me, it was learning about no matter how you set these kids up, you also have to prepare them for the fact that at some point you're going to be put in a position to pick a side or, or you're going to be told you're not who you say you are. Or not enough of one thing or, or another. Not or... Yeah, yeah. What if who people are, contradictions, ambiguity, and all is absolutely enough and we work to reshape society to receive them? And what if there were spaces where declaring who and what we are were met with love and support and much-needed mirroring? 
It's interesting, Malcolm, because in speaking with my sister, Tyla, about the what are you question, I thought about how our mother framed it for us and how in some ways that was supportive, but in other ways, it also led to exotification and a different kind of othering. Just for a sense of framing, I asked Tyla if she got asked the what are you question, and here's what she said. Oh my gosh, all the time. I get asked, what are you all the time? And I think based us to when you get that question, it's actually a form of being flattered. Like someone thinks that you're so beautiful that they're asking you because they want to get to know you and how you became so beautiful that it was always framed in such like a positive way. And then I actually feel like it was when I met more biracial people and started talking to them and hearing, you know, they get that question too. What are you? Some of the people I talked to were so upset with that question and angry about that question. And my experience with that question was so different. But then hearing their experience, I completely understood where they were coming from too. I just feel like I was taught, oh, when people ask you that question, it's because they're jealous. They want to be like you and they're not like you. But then talking to other biracial people about their experience, did it change how you perceive that question when you're asked it now? I feel like I get angry just because I'm here for my biracial brothers and sisters and stuff, you know? I think that now that I'm older, part of the charm of that question has worn off. It's a little bit like it's none of your business, you know? It also depends on who asks it and in what way. And that's something Darylise and I were left thinking about as we conducted 30 interviews, 29 of them with multi-ethnic people, who spoke about others questioning them about their identities and experiences. It's not just what questions were asked, but who's asking them and why. Tyler continued. For example, I'm a teacher. We have this annual person of color conference. It's called POCC. And so it's a bunch of BIPOC educators that get together they have the multiracial affinity space that I go to. When I'm in that space and a question, it's not the exact question, but a question of what are you is asked. Oh my gosh, it's amazing when it's asked in that space. And we have actually like, I'm wearing it now. I have this little string on my wrist that everyone in that multiracial affinity space wears because it's a space where there are so many different ethnic backgrounds that that's kind of the only way to identify that you're in that space. Anyways, when I'm in that space, it's such a celebratory question where sometimes when I'm in other spaces and get a similar question like that, it doesn't feel like celebratory. It feels like someone has the right to know or feel like they just want to know for their own sake. It doesn't feel as like pure or caring. It feels more nosy and tell me about your identity, which doesn't feel great. It can feel caring to be asked to share about ourselves in supportive places by supportive people especially people who share common elements of identity. That said, you don't have to understand biracial identity in order to embrace and honor it. In our next episode, we'll be speaking about identity and the variety of ways people we spoke with identify, as well as some of their reasons for it and how identity can be fluid. But what we'd like to leave you with is an invitation to ask fewer questions about the identities of others and instead to ask yourself, why do you want to know? Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our next eight episodes and please like, rate, and review the podcast. Thank you to all of the season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. 
And thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Covenda Media, along with Paul Kondo, our outstanding editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible, and Jean Song, their director of collaborations. And thank you to everyone who's bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.